Uh, it is my great honor and privilege to introduce to you my friend, John Zoll. Uh, John and I were thick as thieves in seminary and uh, learned, I think, I can at least say this, I learned a lot more from him than I actually did from my classes, uh, which may not be a good thing. Uh, and so, but John and I uh, lived feet away from one another uh, in seminary and very much had parallel lives as we both served in South Carolina. John is married to the lovely Deirdre Zoll and they have a wonderful and extremely precocious daughter named Daphne, uh, who is uh, uh, all that we would expect her to be, uh, having parents like you. So, John, it's wonderful to have you, and uh, God bless you, and look forward to hearing you preach. Canon Zoll will preach after we stand to sing hymn number 665, verses 1, 2, and 5. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in seminary, I had an opportunity to roast Andrew one time uh, during a Christmas festive gathering at Wycliffe. And, uh, I remember saying that we had some very interesting new students at Wycliffe Hall. Had anybody come across Andrew Pearson yet? I said, have you ever tried to imagine what Andrew will be like as an old man? And I said, pretty easy, isn't it? And anyway, they thought that was funny. Um, I'm glad to be here. It's a very moving and special experience for me to be back in the pulpit at the Advent. This church hugely uh, formed me, and God played a crucial role in my life here through the ministry of this church. Uh, I also want to say, I don't know what food they serve at Nukes over there, but I miss the fish market. So I'm not in favor of that development. Lent, let's talk about Lent. Lent is a time when we think about and emphasize the importance of this word repentance. It's easy to get way off track in thinking about repentance. And it's certainly a loaded and polarizing word in the world. To some, it is anathema and epitomizes everything that is wrong with Christianity. To others, Repentance is viewed as the key linchpin from which all meaningful life springs. To a certain extent, I actually sympathize with both of these caricatures. I do think that repentance is an absolutely essential ingredient in the spiritual life. Our preoccupation with penitence does not come from some secret ecclesial desire to keep the people down. And in truth, Lent is not meant to be depressing. No, during this time of year, we are simply underscoring the importance of honesty and self-reflection. Consider for a moment the probing insight of the Book of Common Prayer. There is perhaps no more insightful passage in the whole book than the prayer of confession. I sometimes marvel at how ably it cuts to the heart of lived human experience. 
Maybe you remember the version we find in the service of morning prayer. We have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. I have yet to meet a person that cannot identify in some respect with this sentiment. We can all think of things we should have done, and we can all think of things that we regret having done. Who among us is a stranger to feelings like regret? And who has never needed to say they were sorry? And yet we live in a world that is often quick to downplay the importance of this aspect of our inner life. Sometimes it seems like our attempts to stay positive or avoid negativity have more to do with denial and defensiveness than with virtue. But we do make mistakes and we do disappoint ourselves. And oddly enough, the Christian faith is actually predicated upon this fact. That said, I also think that overemphasizing the importance of repentance usually produces a meager crop. And often it amounts to little more than sword rattling. I say that because I do not believe that repentance is a choice that people are free to make. If anything, repentance is the one choice that people cannot make for themselves. It's a tendency that runs very deep down within people. We see it described classically in the garden, but it's also not hard to find contemporary examples. Two Christmases ago, when my daughter Daphne was just two, I remember a day when I was doing some dishes in the kitchen. She was nearby in the next room playing, and it occurred to me that things were suddenly surprisingly quiet in there. And then I heard a little crinkly sound. So I walked down the hall the long way into the living room so that she could hear my footsteps. And I called to her to let her know that I was looking for her. As I got nearer, I heard a shuffling sound. I turned the corner to find her shoving a pile of wrapping paper behind some presents under the tree, some presents that she had just unwrapped. (laughs) She then got up and hightailed it out of the room as fast as her little tiny two-year-old legs could carry her. And her response when I finally grabbed her was to deflect by drawing attention to the fact that I was holding her arm. And she basically cried in an attempt to get me to comfort her. She explained as best she could that Advent is a sadistic time of year (laughs) where little children are tortured by having to look at presents all day long for many weeks that they are told they cannot open. And she had a good point. But what did she not do? She did not apologize or say she was sorry. Her goal, as I held her there, was to evade, not acknowledge. In that important moment, I'm pleased to report that I never felt any anger or raised my voice. You know that phrase, teachable moment? I guess I saw this to be one in that instant. And I was gentle. And I told her about a time when I had been caught by my own parents, 
One Christmas morning very early, opening a Star Wars video game wristwatch, and that I too agreed it was very hard to wait. Then I dropped the issue for a little while and waited. During bath time, about an hour later, she was still silent, and she was pouting with her outstretched lower lip. And I said, you know, honey, it's much easier just to say you are sorry, and you will feel so much better once you do. And then a tiny little, I'm sorry, eked out of her. And I gave her a hug, and I told her how proud I was of her for being such a big girl. Now, you don't have to be Adam and Eve or a two-year-old in order to identify. But I use that example partly to show that this tendency is one that is present in our DNA from day one. The truth is that we simply always avoid any such reckoning until the last possible moment, until it is squeezed from us like blood from a stone. For this reason, it is incredibly helpful to remember that repentance is something that happens to us when the Spirit of God goes to work on us. The law may reveal our need for repentance, but it cannot produce in us this most fitting and mental health-sustaining response unless the Spirit is at work. We are told by Jesus that that is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, repentance comes from God, not us. And when it is present, God, too, is close at hand. So how does God tend to bring about this much-needed ingredient of humility in his people? What are the dynamics at play when a heart of stone finally morphs into a heart of flesh? When a sorry finally emerges through pursed lips? I think the answer, in a general sense, comes from a short little passage found in Romans chapter 2, when the apostle asks, Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. There's an old Aesop fable that relates to what I'm saying. It's the story of the north wind and the sun. You may be familiar with it. They were arguing one day over which one was stronger. Spotting a man traveling on the road, they sported a challenge to see which one could remove the coat from the man's back the quickest. The wind began. He blew strong gusts of air, so strong that the man could barely walk against them. The man clutched his coat tight against him. The wind blew harder and longer, and the harder the wind blew, the tighter the man held his coat against him. The wind blew until he was exhausted, but he could not remove the coat from the man's back. It was now the sun's turn. He gently sent his beams upon the traveler. The sun did very little, but quietly shone upon his head and back until the man became so warm that he took off his coat and headed for the nearest shady tree. Maybe that tree is actually the cross. In his amazing book, Tattoos on the Heart, 
Father Greg Boyle reflects upon his experience of working with Latino gang members in the heart of L.A. for the past 30 years. He tells the story of a young gangster named Rigo, who after many years of disrespecting him, one day shows up at the church offices with his mother. In a very emotional interaction, Rigo tells the priest about his horribly abusive father. He breaks into tears, recounting the great pain of this man's early years with an abusive father. It's the quintessential gaping father wound that psychologists sometimes refer to. And then Greg asks Rigo about his mother. And he recounts the following. Once he composes himself, I ask, and your mom? He points through the door to the waiting room where a tiny woman is sitting quietly. That's her over there, he pauses for a beat. There's no one like her. Again, some slide appears in his mind and a thought occurs. I've been locked up more than a year and a half and she comes to see me every Sunday. You know how many buses she takes every Sunday? To, meet, to see my sorry rump. Then quite unexpectedly, he starts sobbing again. It takes him some time to reclaim his breath and an ability to speak. Then he does, gasping through his tears. Seven buses. She takes seven buses. Imagine. How then, the author goes on to write, to imagine the expansive heart of this God who takes seven buses just to arrive at us. Again, to quote St. Paul, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's on the bus right now, even as I am speaking to you. I've experienced the ambush of grace myself, which is the shape of Christ's love for us in my own life on more than one occasion. One of them, importantly, occurred sitting right there in a pew in 2001. I keep this photograph on my desk. You can't see what it is, but I'm going to tell you about it. When I first uh, began my work in um, the ordained ministry in Charleston, I served a parish in Sullivan's Island, and one of my jobs I was in charge of, uh, I was sort of a Craig Smalley. I tried to um, offer pastoral care to our parishioners. And part of that meant taking a weekly service of Holy Communion to a local retirement home. Well, after doing this for two years, every Thursday afternoon, pretty much without any interruptions, they decided to do a whole bunch of uh, traffic and road construction in between the church and this retirement home. And I began to dread going. I had to leave a lot earlier. I started to have terrible thoughts. Sometimes I'd run in late, which only made me then want to defend and say, why do I still have to do this? And I had very ugly thoughts running through my head this one day as I was driving there late. And then I walked into the room after running down to hall to the little conference room where we had our service every week. And I saw on a big table 
in front of me, some balloons and a pile of presents. And I noticed that our attendance was really, really strong this week. We had about 15 people there. And then I heard somebody say, turn around, say cheese. And a staff member was there to take my photo. And in that moment, I realized what was happening. And it completely undid me. They knew that my wife was pregnant. And they had planned a surprise baby shower. And if you think about what it takes for a bunch of octogenarians and 90-plus-year-old people to go to a mall, probably taking every driver on the road's life in danger, in, you know, <laughs> this woman right here didn't have any legs, and she had a present for me. Right as I realized what was happening, I heard a voice, am I too late? I'm here. And I turned around, and it was a lady named Aldous. And Aldous is completely blind. She was feeling for the doorway. And she, too, had a beautifully wrapped bag and gift in her hand. There were hand-crocheted booties and little caps. And I was completely blown away that day, undone. And as far as I'm concerned, I learned a bit more about what grace looks like where repentance that is true and honest and healthy comes from, and something so important and nourishing about the shape of the gospel. Let's close with prayer. O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people a fresh experience of your absolving love, which knows no bounds and makes all things new. Amen.